Hello, it's Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this uh, edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Friday appearance on a Wednesday. His weekly Friday appearance, except on a Wednesday, is a lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Kyla McDaniel. And what follows, as he does uh, every week, Kyla McDaniel endeavors in this edition of the program to analyze all prospects. Of particular note this week, well, in fact, uh, we uh, we pick up a line of inquiry, a thread of inquiry, uh, one on which we ended last week uh, during Kyla McDaniel's last edition of the the program. Uh, you might remember David Stearns had just been um, named GM of the Milwaukee Brewers after having been for some time the lone assistant GM for the Houston Astros. This led to a conversation. It led to an it was a naive question by me and an, a substantive answer by Kyla McDaniel about the precise role. Of, uh, of assistant GM or assistant GMs, however the case might be. Some organizations have multiple such uh, positions. In what follows, we pick up that thread and pursue it to its logical conclusion. In fact, basically what I do is I call up the Cubs, uh, somewhat randomly call up the Cubs baseball operations roster and ask Kyle McDaniel to provide, uh, in some cases, uh, brief, in some cases, less brief summary description of what each position entails. What, for example, does a director of pro scouting do versus a director of amateur scouting? And how does that differ from the uh, the duties that are assigned to a director of player development? These are merely a few examples, uh, but we look at this and uh, we ask questions about it. And oh, another thing that Kylie is very good at doing is discussing how these sorts of jobs might differ from organization to organization. It's a roughly hour-long conversation, uh, and you may have zero interest in it, in which case you're not uh, bound to listen. However, I uh, continue to demonstrate some curiosity about it, and I am not that unique. So it's very likely that at least one listener will share in my curiosity. There's a conversation about front office job descriptions. I think that's probably the most succinct way to summarize it. That's to follow. The thing that it will follow is a brief message from our sponsor. The sponsor is Draft and the Draft app. Are you familiar with FanDuel? Or Draft Kings, I guess. Those are two daily fantasy sports games. Draft differs from them uh, in at least one and a half ways. As far as, uh, A, it has not been in the news recently for possible nefarious dealings. And B, it's the first such uh, fantasy sports game designed uh, for mobile devices. Truly mobile experience you get with the Draft app. What you do is you, uh, within a sport, for example, you find an opponent in the Draft universe. It could be a friend. It could be a stranger. You conduct a snake draft, five players each. Those players are group points. You find who wins. If you feel somewhat confident in your skills to do this, you can wager American currency. Nor, should I say, uh, is baseball the only sport uh, with which you can do this. You can do it for NFL football, college football, NHL hockey, and then uh, when the season begins, NBA basketball. And, in fact, there are special postseason leagues going on right now for baseball. Are you consumed by curiosity uh, for the draft app? Then what all you need to do is go either uh, to the App Store or uh, Google Play, for example, if you have an Android-type phone, download the app. Uh, alternatively, if you want to go to the post at which this edition of Fangraphs Audio appears, uh, there is a link there, a smart link. I've been told it is a smart link. So that is Draft, the Draft app. That is available. I've uh, I've told you now about the sponsor. I told you previously about Kyla McDaniel. Please stay tuned for that conversation, which will occur momentarily after a brief musical interlude provided by Kyla McDaniel himself. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature lead prospect analyst. Kyla McDaniel, and it begins right now. So I typed a text to a girl I used to see saying that I chose this cutie pie with whom I want to be. And I apologize if this message gets you down. Then I cc'd every girl that I'd cc round town. And hate to see y'all frown, but I'd rather see her smile and witness all around me true. Wow, that's you in the popular vernacular. I think I it think, does mean I don't, think, I don't think you guys get along. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure to somebody it means that. I don't know. 
And I don't understand why you're coming over to my house. Well, I'm pretty close to your house now. You are. Or you, much closer. Uh, well, you're in Wisconsin, New York City? In the Manhattan area. You're visiting. You have some kind of friend there? Yeah, I might have lunch with Internet Vagabond Ben Lindbergh tomorrow. We're going to see if the schedules work out. Oh, yeah. A little Benny Len- Lindbergh. Hey, does he work in an office or does he work from home? Uh, He is a work from home as far as I yeah. know. I would say... I have no although, idea. Although I, I was, I kind of went over to his place to visit him when he w- didn't work at Grantland. So I don't. Do they have an office here? Maybe they do. I don't know. I mean, Jonah Kerry also writes for Grantland, and yeah. he lives in Denver, Colorado. I want, say, I want to say they have an office in Brooklyn, so maybe he does work out of an office. Have you ever thought you're a smelly blogger like the rest of us, Kylie? Always wearing hoodies. <laughs> do you? Uh, would you, would you, if there were a Fangraphs office, would you, would you work from it? Like, let's say it was within 20 minutes of my house? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I like the idea of having a, uh, a, a place that is for work only and then a place that is for, you know, personal use only. Like, yeah. I think, I think that's one of the downfalls of working from home is you get those things mixed together in your head. You, I mean, there could be days too when you don't really do a lot of leaving the house. That I have caught myself doing that, yeah, yeah, a couple times. It doesn't feel good. It's it's almost like when you if you like, let's say you have a perfectly good excuse to wake up at eleven, like you were doing something until four in the morning that needed to be done at that time, like a perfectly good excuse. Yeah. You still feel irresponsible waking up then, even if you're doing it, you know, as sort of timely as possible given your schedule. I assume and that you the same way with staying at home. Even if you're supposed to, and that's what you're getting paid to do, you feel like a loser at the end of the day. I assume that you um that you've stayed up before. I mean, because you you produced. Like what uh, this whole last off season, you produced a series of of uh, lists, very detailed uh, organizational lists, and I, those seem like they require work. I want. I bet that at one point you stay up late. I saw you doing when you're in Arizona. You're staying up or waking up. No, you didn't really wake up early, did you? No, I'm. I'm more of a. I think I'm most effective uh, working at night, and I tend to not be a wake up early guy. But yeah. you know, sometimes there's a showcase where it starts at eight, and you got to be up, and then all of a sudden that week you start waking up early. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can do whatever's necessary, but if you leave my own devices, I'm, uh, you know, fall asleep uh, midnight to two, and uh, you know, wake up maybe a little later than the office-going crowd. Yeah, today I had, uh, um, for a number of reasons, I was able to sleep in, and uh, I received. I think I woke up maybe at 9:45, and I received at 9:55 an email from my wife informing me that the fire department would be coming around to check. <laughs> that's the yeah. That's the downfall is sometimes because. At my apartment uh, complex, they're having like the they're checking like the uh, the AC and like the sprinklers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And when yeah, when when your schedule is perfectly fine for you, it doesn't coincide with other people's schedule. And sometimes even when you're working from home in your house, yeah, uh, that'll inter- inter- intersect with your day. Well, and it was it was mostly embarrassing because they came over minutes later. And they were just like, "Who is this person?" You know, <laughs> yeah, you get some looks. Yeah, because yeah, you know, like we um, we live on a high school campus. And so everybody is awake. You know, everybody on the entire campus is awake, except maybe for, you know, some, like, faculty children who are taking naps. And they come in, they see, like, a an otherwise perfectly capable 35-year-old man in <laughs> wearing sweatpants and hasn't showered for two days. Yeah, they, um, and they're just like, you haven't left here in a while, have you? Yeah, they're like, you're disappointing, as was, was the, the message I was receiving. Um, that makes sense. Hey, this has been some excellent front matter. Kylie McDaniel, let's. That is uh, absolutely not true. Let me inquire with you as to 
This week in scouting, blah, 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 audio drop. Producers still on vacation. Continue. Let's do it. Uh, this week it's being done by Skrillex. This week in scouting. <laughs> okay, this week in scouting, Kylie McDaniel. Brought to you by Skrillex. Um, was I supposed to prepare for this segment? You, this is something that you've uh, proposed earlier. I think you could tell us something about a Cuban. Do you have any, true. Yeah, any intel get, regarding a Cuban? We get, well, there's actually two. Okay. Uh, so there's one that I talked about in the chat last week, uh, who goes by Lazarito. Mm-hmm. His, his name is Lazaro and then something long, but it's just easier to remember Lazarito. Uh, he, he's surfaced, uh, and did we talk about him last week? I no. feel like we might have okay. No. Um, he surfaced in Haiti. Uh, he's Cuban and I believe has gone to three different countries in the process of establishing residence and defecting and all those sorts of things. And he's a little different than some of the other defectors in that he's only 16. And most oh. of them that defect are, you know, 19 to 30. Um, so he'll be a July 2 eligible and will be sort of, you know, the age of the July 2 guys, which is not normal for the for the Cuban guys. And he's not, like, cleared to sign or anything yet, but I, I, I just mentioned in the chat today that, it's reasonable to assume he'll be cleared at some point in this, like the, I guess what the remaining like nine months of this period. Mm-hmm. But if it ends up being toward the end of that, then he'll have the option of waiting until next year. And so maybe he'll, you know, opt to sign next year if the money ends up being a little better because he should be at the top of the market. And sometimes being able to straddle two different periods allows you to get, to have the top of the market be a little bit higher. But he, uh, he roughly compares, he, he's only been seen, like I, I emailed a bunch of scouts when kind of worded, of his workouts or whatever got around. The heavy hitter guys haven't really gone in to see him yet because typically they'll wait until like the big open workout when he's been like declared a free agent and everything's clear. He has a big workout. Everybody kind of decides if they're in or they're out or what kind of number it's going to be. And oftentimes in the, in the, you know, intervening few months, the guys will, you know, add weight or get faster or, you know, they kind of change as a player otherwise. But the guys that have seen him at some of the international tournaments, there's one in Mexico recently. And then, so I think some guys have seen him working out in Haiti slash the Dominican. Uh, they're telling me it's like roughly comparable to Moncada. Like it's like sixes across the board and it's sort, sort of like a Puig kind of player, like a, probably a right fielder, but is at least a plus runner and can probably play center if you need him to. And it's quick twitch and it's, you know, uh, I would say mature frame, but strong frame has a little bit of projection mm-hmm. and has, you know, plus raw power and all that sort of thing, which, if you then compare that to the 16-year-olds in the, you know, the, the Dominican, to find a guy with like some feel for the game and some feel to hit that has, you know, some upside and then also has showing you a bunch of six, maybe even seven tools, uh, those guys all get like at least three or four million, and that's without seeing them playing games and all that sort of thing. And he now has sort of all of the real things and also some of the mystique things that come with being a Cuban player. And so if it's, you know, roughly comparable to Moncada, that seems to be the scale he'll be compared to. And he's actually, I think, two or three years younger than Moncada is. So it's, I saw somebody responded uh, to what I said in the chat that it seems unreasonable to have a 16-year-old and say the over-under is $65 million or whatever it is Moncada got, uh, or how much was paid. He got half of that. Uh, but it's like those sorts of tools. It's just sort of, it's, a, it's an unsure at this juncture. So it, I think it'll almost certainly, it seems like, go over 10. But it's unclear if it's going to be, you know, 11 or 35. And it's, you know, pretty, pretty wide variance at this point. But it's, it's exciting. Yeah. So tell me how one goes about, um, uh, what's the word I want to find? I guess accruing 
finding intel about a 16-year-old Cuban. I assume that you know some of these guys, they come through on the national team or there's at least some knowledge of their professional uh, their prof- you know their ability against other uh, professionals in the in the uh, Cuban series. Uh, but w- how do you go about having some sort of knowledge about a 16-year-old from Cuba? Um, well, yeah, almost all of them that are of any interest to people like us that are, you know, the multi-million dollar variety are going to be on one of the national teams, depending on the age, uh, and usually one of the more, you know, like the WBC or the, you know, sort of the traveling national team. Um, but there's like 16 new tournaments and 18 new tournaments. So no matter how young you are, there's sort of a team you could be on or a tournament that you are chosen for. Um, and then obviously there's, you know, a big pro league where, you know, there's not obviously, you know, American scouts going to watch them, but there's sort of a general, you know, these, these are televised and teams can get a hold of these, uh, games on film. Um, so there's like a general awareness of, you know, what they're able to do and obviously statistics of what they're able to do in Cuba. But I mean, that's like, you know, sort of like Mexican league numbers. It's, you know, it's just sort of, well, it can be an indicator and it can be perfectly analogous to their ability. And sometimes it means almost nothing if it's a certain, you know, depending on what sort of player it is. So in my case, I hear there's a guy or I get some sort of tip and then I just, you know, there's, I don't know, six or eight international guys that I can usually count on that if I ask about any one guy, I'll get a, a pretty good report from at least two or three of them. And then maybe if I need more or maybe those guys haven't seen him or maybe a dog's barking, uh, <laughs> Then there's, you know, some other guys that maybe you're more good in a specific area. It's more of sort of the area scout or certain area cross checker for, uh, for Latin America. Like the cert- I think now there's been so many Cuban players, certain guys are now being assigned. You deal with the Cubans and you do everything except for the Cubans. And then like Pacific Rim has become sort of its own thing now because Japanese and Korean professional players is, you know, a lot of options and things like that. So there's also sort of specialties within it, but there's also sort of the director of international, which if they haven't seen them, they have one of their guys that has seen them, and so they almost always have an answer, which similarly when you're doing a prospect list, a director of pro scouting is a great guy to know because then you basically have access to his entire scouting staff. And so if he hasn't seen a guy, he knows which one of his guys has seen him. He can read the report, and he can tell you you know, the things you need to know from it. So, yeah, hopefully the director-level guys are super useful when it comes to these sorts of things. Okay. Now, that, this was all regarding Lazarito, yes, that we were discussing here? Yeah, and I guess there's another one we can talk about. Now. Yeah, let's say, say his name. Feel free to say his name. Hey, well, you could say this one, uh, <laughs> Ed, Ed, Eddie Julio Martinez. Okay, I could say Eddie Julio Martinez. Yeah, those are all words you've heard before. Yeah. So I explained in the chat today a little bit of what happened, but he was, I think, number two. Uh, might have been number one. Actually, I'll pull it up on my July two sortable board. Uh, he's a Cuban player that is, I think, twenty. I should probably know the answer to this. Around, uh, I think it's fine. He's around twenty. Yeah, well, I'm fine with it. I don't, I don't. Honestly, Uh, I I don't care about any of this, but I'm, you know, I'm paid to host this. I had him second on the sortable board behind Yadier Alvarez, who got 16 million from the Dodgers. Uh, I projected Martinez for, uh, 11 million with the Dodgers. Uh, although I think the, I think I said 10 or 11 in the comment. It was basically 10 or 11 right around there. And the, uh, sort of what I had heard was we got a 20 year old Cuban. It's like a center fielder, like a 65 runner. Kind of like 50 powers. You're kind of looking for like, a, say, 260, 270, 12, 15 homers, steal some bases, play center field. 20 years old could go to like high A or maybe even double A for his first year. So, you know, it's a top 100 sort of prospects. And uh, it seemed like what I had been told is the Yankees made a run at him at the end of the, like he became eligible to sign at the end of a period. It was the period the Yankees went over on. Mm-hmm. I told the Yankees made a run, offered you know somewhere like five to seven, maybe eight million, somewhere in that area. 
the agent was like, ah, it looks like we're going to get more from either the Dodgers or the Giants or a couple other teams that were showing interest that could spend in the next period because obviously that level of bonus would send you over immediately. So they ended up turning down the Yankees. Uh, way to the next period, the Dodgers and Giants were the two teams that were most in on them. It sounded like the Dodgers were going to sort of team up with, uh, you know, Yadier Alvarez for 16 and um, uh, Starlin Heredia, I think, got two and a half. And they also had, who was the other guy? Uh, Ronnie Brito they got, I think, for two, maybe two and change. They were signing a couple guys. And so it was sort of assumed, and they were showing the most interest. His camp was, you know, sort of in- intimating that when I would say this is what I'm hearing, they're like, yeah, that's generally correct. And so I don't know the exact who was offered what and when and all that sort of thing, but it sounded like the Giants and Dodgers were both on him and Lucius Fox, uh, the uh, player from the Bahamas that's, yeah. eight, that's 18, a shortstop. And they were both on both of those players. And it looked like one team would get one and one team would get the other. Well, it worked out that the Giants got Lucius for, I believe, $6 million, And right around when the Giants locked him up, there was an expectation the Dodgers would go over the top and you know give him seven or something, and they kind of backed away. And then once the Giants had spent that money... Uh, they didn't have, you know, ten million dollars or eight or whatever it was they were willing to spend on Martinez. It was, it was sort of seen that the Do- I think the Giants' ceiling was eight or nine million. Everyone just assumed the Dodgers would top it. So then the Giants sort of pull out because they have Fox, and then the Dodgers I think realized they were the top of the market without anyone to compete with them, and other Cuban players are defecting like every couple weeks, and so it seems like they kind of pulled back and were like, let's reevaluate. Let's not just spend all the money on whoever's in front of us right now. We've got a whole year to spend this money, but only a year. So maybe in three months, the guy we really want is going to come out and, you know, maybe they'll eventually find the bottom of that money pit they have. So it seems like basically one team really liked him, the Yankees, and then weren't able to get him because of timing. And then the price kept going up. The agent was like, oh, we got a thing here. The Giants signed another guy. They are still interested, but at a lower price. And the Dodgers, I think, just sort of see uh, where the market's going and just sort of step away. And then all of a sudden, all three teams disappear and they don't have a market at all. And so eventually that agent gets fired new agent comes in, and in the last couple of weeks, I think they were basically setting expectations like, hey, we're looking at like the $5 million range, like that kind of thing. And then once they got an offer, I think it was two and a half from the Dodgers, or from the Giants, it was, all right, we get two and a half now, or we can wait, maybe get as much as five or six in that area, but who knows? And obviously, you know, there's various sort of uh, people with different cuts in him, all these different Cuban players, usually there's percentages for many different people. Um and they, you know, it sounds like those people wanted to get paid and they would rather just sort of get the money and get started. So they took two and a half. And one of the things that I mentioned in the chat was this happens a ton in July, too, with 16-year-olds. There was one last year that had a verbal deal with the Yankees. It was reported, uh, I think, for 1.7 or 1.6 uh, named Chris Torres. And then the Yankees sort of reneged on their verbal deal, which is as uh, sort of frowned upon as you would guess. And he ended up signing, I think, for like 350000 with the Mariners. And it was like, was he a 1.7 or whatever it was million dollar player to every team? Like, no, I'd guess if you averaged all 15 teams, it would be like, you know, 1 million would be the opinion. But is he as bad as the 350,000? He's not that bad either. It's just all the money was spent. And so if there's not a market, it's not like you automatically get whatever the 15th team's opinion is of you as an average of all of them. You get whatever a team is willing to pay you. And if you want to sign quickly, it might not be that much. So in Martinez's case, there were, it seems like, three teams that thought he was worth, you know, say seven to ten million, which with the penalty would be fifteen to twenty million. But then all of a sudden, for various reasons, they couldn't pay him or opted not to, or were in sort of a holding pattern. And then all of a sudden, you get down to the two and a half million bonus, which would be a five million dollar outlay with the penalty. All of a sudden, that's sort of what he ended up getting paid. And so the gap between that five million and twenty million of the overall price for Martinez exists. 
you would then assume the 15th team probably falls somewhere in between those two numbers, and that would be sort of the industry consensus. But then he also, his price is dictated by the team that pays the most, uh, which uh, in this case right now is the Giants. But I think if it was all things being equal, everyone had, you know, able to reset their bonuses or, you know, the teams that were penalty in the penalty were out of the penalty, I think it'd be higher than that. And so in this case, uh, especially in this July too, you can see guys where uh, this exact thing happened. I think the pitcher of the Cardinals signed, uh, Alvaro Sejas. Apparently he turned down something over a million dollars, maybe even close to two, and they got him for 725000 So, I mean, there's like multiple examples of this every year where the agent kind of rides the momentum and then gets a little greedy and then teams kind of get, uh, you know, don't like where things are heading or didn't like that it was taking too long and just kind of move on somewhere else. And then the, and then the, you know, the, there's like a bubble of, of the player and it crashes and you have to settle for, you know, 30% as much as you were going to get or, or whatever it is. So you end up being like the uh, human equivalent of pets.com. Yeah, I was actually when I was saying that I was kind of thinking about the how there's a lot of articles recently about how there may be a another bubble in the tech uh, area. Is that going to affect me? That's what I. I don't think so. I was actually talking to a friend of mine that does uh, investing, and I was asking because most of these, almost all these companies, people are saying are evidence of a bubble are almost all private. And so I was saying at some point, if there is a bubble and there's like stuff happens, it'll show up in the markets at some point because it's like you know like Fidelity has part of Uber. Like there's you know real big companies that are you know. Heavy hitters in the uh, financial world are, yeah. are are vested, and so if they take even just sort of paper write downs, eventually that'll find its way into the public markets. But so yeah, I guess it will affect you, but probably not that much. And probably I think not, because I think it, if you don't have a lot of money to begin with, it's hard for it to affect you greatly, isn't it? That's true, and also if everyone is constantly talking about how there might be a bubble, that means if there is one, that it you know it won't have a huge effect because the big effect is when no one sees it's coming, and then it comes, and then it mm-hmm. happens. Hey, uh, Kylie McDaniel. Uh, last week we th- – this is a segue, by the way. Are you, are you ready for it? Are you prepared for it? Unless you have any – Ride this segue. Grand, grand pronouncements uh, regarding the thing. That that was our update think, in Scatter. Yeah, I think the front matter went long enough. I don't think we had any more like call-ups no. or draft showcases to talk about. No, no, no. Uh, but last week we, um, we discussed in some depth the role of the assistant gen- uh, general, general manager because Mr. David Stearns – does that sound right? Yep, that's how you say it. Mr. David Stearns uh, was at one point the assistant uh, general manager for Houston. He was hired to be the real live general manager for the uh, – which I don't think is his job title. They're not dead general managers. Well, right. I mean, I guess there are, but they're not called that. Right. The um, the the general manager for the, the Brewers, and I asked you – well, I asked you uh, a couple questions. One was – uh, what do assistant general managers do? And the other, another one was why did the Astros only have one, whereas some teams have have more than one? And that opened up a, a discussion about the the roles um, within you know with one team specifically with regard to the AGM. Uh, what I was thinking we might do, and what I th- think you might do, you were thinking we might do, and so we we're thinking about doing it together was to talk about uh, some of the other positions within a front office. And precisely uh, what their roles are, or, or at least you know, on average, what their roles are. Yeah, so I guess we can. I think we've talked a little bit about this and a little bit about the uh, structure of like a scouting department. <clears throat> right. uh, but yeah, I think we can have like sort of a more formal, sweeping. Let's include everybody in one discussion 
So you can, when people ask these sorts of questions, you can point them to this thing. Yeah. So, so here's what I've done is I've opened up uh, mostly at random. Well, no, there's not. It's not entirely random, but I. Ended, um, yeah, I feel like it's maybe better to go through in a logical sense than just jump all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So I opened up just the like uh, MLB's webpage, the front office listings for, or at least the baseball operations listings for the Chicago Cubs, right? Because okay. I think the Chicago Cubs, it, I'm sure it happened before, but it was probably the first time in which I really became aware of. A, a new trend, uh, and maybe it was an early example of a trend in which the GM, in which the 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 person who's performing GM-like activities is actually given a title higher than GM. In this case, Theo Epstein is the president of baseball operations of that team. Yes, I'm also pulling this up so I can contribute in this. Yeah, area. yeah. Now so, I can see it. So Theo Epstein was the general manager of the Boston Red Sox. Had uh, some good years. And then uh, was open to the challenge of uh, leading the Chicago Cubs uh, to a World Series. And, of course, they play in a playoff game on Wednesday night, which is uh, which is great. Um, so how many clubs uh, – I, I don't want you to answer this specifically, but it, there seem to be at least – Seven. A, oh. <laughs> a handful of clubs that have this this current arrangement, right, where the they've given the title of – uh, president to the guy who's actually making decisions that have formally belonged to the G- to the GM exclusively. Yes, and I noticed actually today another one of these was announced that Cleveland moved GM Chris Antonetti to president of baseball ops and assistant GM Mike Chernoff to GM. And it, you can tell if you sort of follow along like the stuff I've written, the stuff other people have written, why this is happening. Um, so, and and actually I think uh, trade rumors had referred to. Uh, had referred to it as like an, on, an ongoing trend and, and referenced how many teams are doing it, which I think it I actually said seven because I thought that was the question you were going to ask. Uh, I so think you it were is, right. You were right. I, th- I think it is seven okay. after, after this today. Uh, but teams where there is a president of baseball operations who does, as you're saying, sort of the GM duties of, which I'm not sure there's necessarily GM duties, but it's basically just being like where the buck stops, like the last baseball decision maker or highest ranking one on sort of a daily basis. Right. Or if there's like a, if there's like a trade being made, he's the one who is, we think, likely most – he is the one responsible for, uh, you know, saying yes, unless there's some sort of extenuating circumstance regarding, you know, allowance for salary or something like that. Yeah, and so there's Dave Dombrowski with the Red Sox is that, uh, Theo Epstein with the Cubs, Andrew Friedman with the Dodgers. Uh, I believe Dan Duquette has that title with Baltimore, just because I don't, I don't think they give the title GM to any of their guys. Okay. Um but yeah, there's a, there's a couple other ones I'm not thinking of. Uh, it's okay, I'm not. I'm oh, not there was also Oakland just recently did the same thing where they promoted Billy Bean to I think it's executive vice president of baseball operations, which mm-hmm. is the, basically the same thing. And uh, and I think there's I th- think Dombrowski may have been the only guy when he was with Detroit where it wasn't just president of baseball operations; it was just like president of the company. Mm-hmm. Because typically the reason they do that is typically you want like a head business guy as president, and then like a head baseball guy as president of baseball ops. And the reason they do this is, like you can see Theo, used to be general manager, and he was, I think it was like what traded for or something from the Red Sox, there was like a player exchange, uh, because he was general manager. And so to get him, uh, the sort of understanding is, it's not like a rule, but the way it's treated in baseball is uh, as though it's a rule. If a team calls another team and says, we want to interview your X for uh, X plus one, like a slightly better title, uh, then you either have to let him interview for it and let him make a decision, and often if he turns it down, the team he was at will give him that promotion. 
uh, or deny permission and then give him some sort of promotion in exchange for not allowing him to pursue his opportunities. Uh, and there's, you know, some instances where that doesn't happen, but it's like maybe 10% of the time. Right. And so what is the, what are the rules precisely about denying permission? Because it would seem as though... Well, if they're under contract, you can't, like, that's what I'm saying. It's not, you're not obliged to give them permission, but it's sort of seen as good business because people don't want to work there if they know once you get there on a four-year deal, if a year later somebody wants to give you promotion, they won't let you, then you won't want to work there. So it's more of a long-term punishment. For for the club that denies permission, because yeah. because they, that makes them immediately less attractive to which I think is what Baltimore did with Dan Duquette when he wanted it seemed like he wanted to go to Toronto. I believe they formally asked permission, and Baltimore said nope, and we're not giving you a promotion, which I guess they couldn't, and we're not going to give you extra money. We're just saying no because we don't have to say yes. Right, and well, and in some cases, Kid Angelo saying that. Would, and that would that have been would that have been a promotion for him for Duquette, or is it sort of a lateral move? Uh, well, it would have been the sort of head of business overseeing baseball in sort of a hands-off role as opposed to head baseball guy. And so those two, I don't know if you, I mean, you can consider that a promotion if you want to. Uh, it's, it's just sort of a different job, but the, the job that typically pays more. Yeah, Duquette's title is Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, which is the same title Billy Bean has, which is supposed to sort of function as a president of baseball operations. Okay. So, um, so under, so under uh, Theo Epstein, uh, with the Chicago Cubs, and again, not using the Cubs for any real examples, just except for the, the that it represented uh, a, a case of. And I actually am noticing, looking over it, that, um, uh, and this is further down the list, but, it, but this is certainly part of their front office. Jeremy Greenhouse, who used to write for Hardball Times, and also Albert Liu, who used to write uh, for Fangraphs.com. Uh, they're also part of their front office. I probably knew that, but I've for, forgotten. Um, what do you what do you suppose Jed Hoyer and Jed Hoyer type positions do? These these are the sorts of these are the sorts who are called uh, vice president um, and also called general manager. I mean Jed Hoyer is, no, is regarded as a general manager. Is this just something that does he perform a function not unlike what the top AGM would have for for another club? Yeah, it's a uh, a clear number two. It's not like there's you know like some teams. What if you were to go back to the old structure? Where it was GM. And then a couple assistant GMs, it wouldn't be clear to people who the sort of number one assistant was. And so this is another way to sort of point that out more clearly. I think some teams would do AGM and then there'd be a VP slash AGM, and that was a way to denote which one was the more senior one. Uh, but even that sort of denom- the, the uh, notation mm-hmm. wasn't just to let everyone know which one's more important than the other, which is kind of stupid. It's it's all based, and you'll hear this coming up as we talk about these different titles, that's all based on what I have to call you to make sure other teams don't take you, or what I had to call you to get you here to consider it a promotion. And why is that? I mean, listen, I, I suppose I understand. I know men. I am one, in fact. Um, and I, Well, I know people generally, and people like to feel important, I suppose, right? They like to feel as though they are being appreciated at their place of work and uh, other places. I don't myself i don't have that experience and so um, i've never minded but i understand that some people appreciate it and i mean is it just is it is it a question of vanity or is it is there something else that's sort of uh, tangible to be attached it's to? well it's not even necessarily vanity because i'm not sure like jed hoyer's walking in like general manager's not enough i need to be also called executive vice president like i'm i'm sure he doesn't care mm-hmm. uh some guys may have enough ego that they want to have the such and such title and to have it appear this way and, and they're the one driving that boat uh, or train or other vehicle. 
but yeah, the general idea is it's all about positioning uh, this person in such a way uh, to make it harder for people to take him and for us to be able to use him when we brought him over from another team as a promotion and things like that. It's, it's sort of driven by, I guess you could call that an overarching title and sort of be politics. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's fine. It, right. And it also maybe makes it – so once you've assumed uh, like that title of executive vice president, uh, you're not going to be – you're not going to be making a downward move likely provided, yeah. provided you are um, um, adequately performing your job. Yeah, and one other thing to keep in mind is if you're, say, an assistant director with the team and everyone agrees you've proven that you're worthy of being director, if they know another team isn't going to ask permission to take you, then they don't have to uh, give you that promotion. Mm-hmm. And there are teams that are sort of known for undertitling in some ways to sort of obscure which one of their younger executives is has most, most brightest because if you were if you were to promote that one out of the group of four that had the same title to director, it would sort of tip everyone off. Oh, that's the one. You know, if we're the smart team with all the numbers that everyone wants to take someone from, that sort of points out, hey, that director, you could get him with an AGM title, and if you just never promote guys or, you know, maybe pay them more but give them the same title, uh, then it's a little easier to obscure that. Uh, but then other, other, you know, companies in general and also baseball teams are just a little more deliberate about those sorts of things, and it's not necessarily to obscure which one of our guys is the smartest. But when you're talking about, I was just talking to somebody about this today, when you're talking about, like, an analytics department, um, these guys don't often change teams a lot because, like, scouts, coaches, these sorts of guys, executives, they're all around, they're talking to other teams, they're at games, they're sitting next to people, players go from one team to another, they can tell you which coaches are good. It's, like, openly known, like, who the good ones are. Analytics, it's all completely in-house. They don't talk to analytics guys from other teams. They don't, you know, unless they're, like, an assistant GM that also does analytics, they don't talk to other teams about trades. Nobody can see their work other than their boss, plus they have all of the sort of quote, secrets that their team has as far as, like, proprietary metrics, things like that. So that's, like, a an area where there's not a lot of movement from team to team. But in every other part of baseball where there's this sort of open discussion of who's where, those are the guys you see all move. Commonly. So wait, so you're saying that, they, that these teams just, they, they essentially capture nerds <laughs> and then they lock them away? And and hope no one knows which one is the good one out of the group of four that have the same title. Who are the they only promote them when they have to? You mentioned contracts, right? If a, if, a, if an employee is under contract, not a not a player, an employee, are these contracts <coughs> for roughly the same length as the sort that we'd find among you know among those contracts that are reported among players and managers? Uh, well, there's a reason that uh, front office contracts are never public uh, as far as like length and money. Sometimes, like, GMs, like, if there's a precedent-setting GM deal, I think, like, people, I don't know if it's the players' union or whatever, want them out there just so people know that Andrew Friedman's making $7 million a year. Mm-hmm. You don't really, unless it's, I've noticed, like, uh, Ken Rosenthal has reported what uh, Dan Jennings is making because that's, like, a news thing. And so it wasn't out there, and then I'm guessing Ken wanted to find out what it was and found out. And it's, like, pertinent to what's going on to know how much money he's making to know that they're not just going to fire him. Um and and I think also when you get a new GM, sometimes they'll announce it's a three-year deal or a four-year deal or a five-year deal or whatever it was. But generally, those things aren't public because I think I think the front office people don't think of themselves as necessarily public figures and would like to sort of keep those things under the radar. But it is it is kind of funny that everyone knows everything about what every player and in general managers are making. 
but no one knows anything about the guys that decide how much these guys make. Yeah, and so, and, but are the contracts roughly the same length? I mean, are they two, three, oh yeah, four well, years? um, yeah, I think GMs either get like three to five year deals generally, and then sort of extensions of generally that length. But the lower level, I'd say like director and lower, I think it's usually like one and two year deals or one with an option, things like that are typically standard. Okay. Said, you want to you want to have some flexibility because what if your GM gets fired? You got a bunch of guys on four year deals that you know you can't get rid of. So I think only the super high end, you know, sort of assistant GM, VP, and higher get more than sort of two year deals in a front office. Right. Now you see you can, you've used this word director a couple times. I see in the Cubs maybe I don't know if this is an exception if this is the rule. The Cubs uh, the Cubs have three players who have the word uh, who are regarded as directors. There's a three, director. Three executives. You said players. Yes. Three. Front office members who yes. are who are uh, give, given the title of director. One of them is uh, Joe uh, Boringer. 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 Boringer mm-hmm. actually uh, during one of our first maybe our first year, the Fangraphs first year at uh, in Arizona, we held an event and Joe, Bo- uh, Joe Boringer spoke there. It was when he was with the Diamondbacks then. He is the director. He's a nice guy. That's what I wanted to say about him. Very pleasant, articulate. Agreed. Very nice having him around. Uh, director of pro scouting. Scott Harris is the director of baseball operations. And, of course, much of what we're discussing here is under the umbrella entirely of baseball operations. And then, finally, there's uh, Chris Moore, Director of Research and Development. Is it is is this a, is this a typical arrangement? Yeah, those are titles. I mean, research and development could be analytics or statistical, whatever. Like, there's a different, different ways to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, those three titles are uh, either titles or definitely functions that exist. But I would say Director of Pro Scouting, Director of Baseball Operations – Pretty sure there's 30 guys with that exact title on all 30 teams, mm-hmm. and director of some version of analytics or R&D or whatever exists for I don't know 20 or 25 of the 30 teams probably. Okay, so so this is not atypical to see this. Uh, this those sort three of are, those three are very typical, and they also have well, I see two assistant GMs and then sort of a GM or president. So yeah, that there and up, those are all very typical things that every team has one of those. Right, and so we, and we discussed recently uh, the, the role of the assistant general manager. That's why I skipped over it um, because so sort of uh, working with Jed Hoyer is uh, Randy Bush and Shiraz Raymond. Is that how you say it? Shiraz Raymond. Yep. Uh, and they both are given the title of assistant GM, uh, <clears throat> not unlike um, David Stern's course, who was with uh, who was with the Houston Astros. The Houston the the mustaches is what, is what I heard, but I think it's Houston Astros is what you said. It's what I meant, at least. Right. Now, listen, I've, I've just uh, gone over because um, the Dodgers are another team we've invoked during the course of this conversation. I see a couple of differences there. So they have they have five directors, right? And research and development is one of them. We discussed that. Baseball operations is a second. And <clears throat> they don't necessarily have uh, – they don't have anything, sorry, called pro scouting specifically, but they do have player personnel, amateur scouting, and player development. Is that – are somehow those three – are they folded into is – that, is that sort of all under the uh, – oh, so Yeah, those are also very typical. I'm trying to see what titles the Cubs use for the guys that have – because I know the guys that do those jobs. Oh, they're actually just in the next section. They have player development amateur scouting as the next section for the Cubs, and that's where they have director of player development and director oh, okay, of great. Scouting. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, so I see. So senior – so Jason McLeod is the senior vice president, and he's also uh, in charge of player development and amateur scouting. Yes. Ah, okay, yes. And so, yes, here we have the director of player development. That's, uh, sorry, is that Jaron? Yep. Jaron Madison. And then Formerly the of the Cardinals. Okay, and then the director of amateur scouting. So that's, that's the same rough, uh, this just happens to be. Yeah, those are all, those are all titles that I would say at least 28, if not 30 teams all use the same sort of 
name names and functions and uh, all that sort of thing. Okay, so let's uh, can we just go through briefly? I I, ho- I don't know if this is uh, the very peak of excitement for some people, but it is for me. It's very helpful, um, and so I will continue to pursue it. Uh, uh, Joe Bornger, the director of pro scouting. This is mean. Uh, he is in charge of all the people who are scouting professional baseball games. Yeah, and also sort of organizing information. So there's different sorts of pro scouting guys. Some of them are former scouts that are just sort of so good that they that the front office wants them to sort of uh, you know oversee the scouts. And some of them are more sort of uh, office guys uh, that are good at collecting information and can converse with scouts. And they're more seen in like a coordinating information role rather than like scouting role necessarily. Right, but uh, they obviously they it's required to have some sort of. Yeah, everyone's good. Everyone that has that job is good at both of those things, but they're sort of classified as one or the other, as like an office sort of guy or a scout sort of guy, mm-hmm. based on basically what their last job was. Um, but yeah, so they would be in charge of coordinating the say eight to twelve full time big leagues or a pro scouts you have. Some teams have major league scouts, uh, some don't. That's a whole different thing we can talk about when it comes to like advanced scouting, because that's so basically some teams don't have any uh, advanced scouts. And only have like one or two major league scouts because all of these sort of uh, video and pitch effects and all that sort of stuff, uh, and all the statistics that represent the games you weren't able to watch as a scout, they sort of capture the information you couldn't get. And so director of pro scouting is a little more focused on the, you know, those eight to 12 guys that are basically doing minor league games. Mm-hmm. And now, now teams are commonly going down all the way to the, to the complexes and short season leagues and all that. And then also, uh, watching the, uh, Asian professional, so I guess be basically the Korean and Japanese pro leagues, uh, sort of helping coordinate those, or at least be working with the international group that may sort of technically oversee those, sort of having that information. Think of it as like the assistant assistant GM. So like if you have an assistant GM that is seen as the right-hand man of the GM to give him information and sort of oversee departments, the director of pro scouting is basically the guy that's sort of like on the ground helping uh, get all this information and, and bring it together on the scouting end of things. But then also, especially if they happen to be a little more of the office type rather than the scouting type, they'll also sort of dip into analytics and they're just sort of like, you know, the guys that are making the rankings basically, which is why I was saying director of pro scouting is a great guy for me to know because they're going to they're gonna have knowledge of analytics. They're going to know what all of the scouts think. They're going to know what the GM thinks. Like they're sort of one of those guys to use in quotes in the room mm-hmm. when stuff's being decided. Often that guy is the, you know, if it's GM, assistant GM, maybe a VP. If there's more than three people in the room, that guy's probably in the room. Okay. If, he's if, seen as like an information, like, uh, uh, aggregator. Spur. Yeah. Right. And he has to have some facility as you're, as you're noting with, uh, both the scouting and the sort of analytics side. And I would assume that his expertise in either sub, in either matter or both matters, would vary depending on the organization. So if a team has a stronger scouting presence or a stronger analytics presence, his his expertise might um, might vary given the, given uh, the organization. Well, and for example, if you saw the news recently, uh, Matt Arnold, who was the I believe director of pro scouting for the Rays, who recently got moved to director of player personnel, which I guess is seen as a promotion, although you could argue it's sort of the same thing. He, uh, the reports is he was going to go to the Marlins, and I think it was uh, Ken Rosenthal said he was going to head up a analytics department, which they obviously don't, aren't seen as being the most analytic in the world and don't have a huge department for that. But usually a director of pro scouting in, in, uh, in sort of the skill set wouldn't be the guy to head an analytics department. But if you're coming from Tampa, that means you're going to be involved in analytics because the pro scouting and the analytics are kind of melded together. 
And so, you know, at the very least, you know what kind of information you need that they that they sort of make inf- uh, decisions with. Right. So that's like another extension of it. Whereas I would say there's more more than not uh, director of pro scouting would be more sort of scout that's been around for a while kind of guy. But I but I think with GMs turning more into sort of the Ivy League type decision maker rather than the sort of gut feel scout, you'll see the director of pro scouting become more of like I said, like an assistant assistant GM, like the guy just below that guy. No, you mentioned with regard, you mentioned that some teams. Um, uh, they may they may have very few or or, or zero major league scouts um, or advanced scouts. Is it is it possible that so for example actually it makes sense we're talking about the Cubs right now. The Cubs have to win a game against the against the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's an important game, and it seems to me that you would want to have as much information available to you as possible. It seems like also that you'd want to know how certain Pirates hitters were uh, were looking recently. Um, and so yes. is is it possible that in a situation like this they might move some of their pro scouts or even amateur scouts to an advanced scout, a temporary advanced scouting. Um, yes, that to, is, to, that to is what happens. That definitely happens. So, like, I have some friends that are, like, amateur scouts or cross-checkers, and sometimes they'll say, like, oh, I can't go to the showcase. I'm going to, you know, advance the Indians for the playoffs. And they'll – basically, that's, like, the pro scouting director will say, all right, here's three pro guys that I like. Here's two amateur guys I think would be good at this. Uh, and because often it'll be when it's down the stretch in the regular season, you'll go advance the five teams you might need in the wild card game, trying to get a couple weeks worth of information, kind of thing. Right. So they they will do that. Uh, I guess if you want to jump down a little bit, you still, you'll see there's two guys named coordinator of advanced scouting. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> one more time. We have a uh, we have an angry dog. Oh. Okay, she's all right now. So uh, coordinator coordinator of advanced scouting. And so what that means? No, I don't Nate, know those. Nate guys. Nate Holm. Yes. And Tommy Hadovy, who used to be a Red Sox minor leaguer. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know those guys specifically. I don't know exactly what they do, but in general, that will mean down in the clubhouse dealing with video. Uh, if like a player walks in and says, "Hey, what was my last at bat against so and so when he threw a curveball?" There's sort of uh, software that every team has where they can pull that up and show you. And then also they're the ones with like the, you know the spray charts and the uh, you know uh, where to put our uh, infielders uh, for shifts and things like that. Talking about you know third and fourth time through the lineup, maybe advising in this case Joe Madden on how we want to attack this guy. We're going to throw cutters inside because we're going to throw cutters inside to a lefty. Let's shift, even though the numbers say that we shouldn't. Like sort of getting all of that information together and sort of traveling with the team, being in the clubhouse, that sort of thing. So, okay, those, so yeah, so they, they those, have some those idea. Those are the guys that are going to be able to tell you the things that an advanced scout would tell you. Mm-hmm. That now advanced scouting can generally be done in front of a computer, basically. And so now it's those two guys rather than. Traditionally, like 15 years ago, every team had, you know, three advanced scouts or two advanced scouts that would just go watch the team, write a report, have a conference call, and now it'll be that. But when it comes to the playoffs, the stakes are so much higher, they'll pull guys off the road from their normal assignment, have them do advanced to sort of complement what those guys are doing. Because, like I said, the, the stakes are so much higher. If the eyeball of a scout could catch something that these guys may miss, you want to know that. Right, right. And, and so, so this is a job requires, it seems like, a strong organizational skills. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just wondering. And uh, you know, see, so you mentioned Tommy Hadovy was a former minor leaguer. Yeah. It's important when you're sort of in the clubhouse and in that culture. It's a uh, it's a plus to sort of have some knowledge of that culture and some, uh, you know, some experience playing and like that helps translate more easily. Okay. Uh, like the things you're saying. Then if you were just throw two like MIT nerds down there, that might be a little bit nerds. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. Director of we talked about Scott Harris, uh, the director of baseball operations. 
And of course, you know, in that to me, uh, well, it's, uh, to an idiot like myself, it's maybe a little bit confusing because all of these things are sort of under the larger umbrella of baseball operations. Well, literally, there's a heading above this area that says baseball operation. Yeah, that's true. It's a fact. So you could argue the GM's title should be director of baseball operations. <laughs> yeah, you could argue that. Uh, yeah, so director of baseball operations is another title that is in every front office. Uh, what it typically means, and different teams will use it slightly differently depending on the exact personnel and skill set and things, um, is sort of the head of administration and uh, I, I want to say information because that would imply sort of scouting information, but uh, sort of like uh, rules, waivers, contracts, uh, paperwork. Uh, a lot of times they're the guy that's in charge of like hiring the interns, and just sort of general uh, extra stuff that isn't like scouting or on the field sort of things. They handle all that other stuff, and often, often we'll do. You know, we'll go cover a few teams. We'll write scouting reports. We'll do all this other things too. A lot of these different guys will do all of these different things. Uh, but yeah, they're sort of seen as more of sort of a head of administration sort of role. Okay, so like when when uh, Fangraphs occasionally Fangraphs will have a job posting from a, from a team. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that this was uh, the, this was the work of the director of baseball operations? Yes, I okay. would say in many cases that would be the case. And okay. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's important to point out that that isn't exactly what it is for every team or every guy, but it is. I would say eighty percent of teams. That's eighty percent of what their job is. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're saying. Now, wait, we we mentioned the director of uh, we didn't mention the director of pro scouting. Uh, there's also a director of amateur scouting. The yeah, well, before covers we. Matt Dory. Before we go there, I had one more thing to add. You'll okay. notice there's a coordinator of pro scouting, coordinator, uh, that's one guy, Andrew Bassett, mm-hmm. with the Cubs, and then you'll see coordinator of scouting and PD, which is player development video. These are the guys that, uh, when I say, like, the pro scouting guy, pro scouting director has to, like, coordinate the scouts, what I mean is sometimes that means before the season starts, every single scout is given, and sometimes to the day, where they're going to be. No one guy can't really do that and keep track of it. And like, you know, there's a guy in, in the fin- finance um, department that's like doing all their expenses. And there's a guy that when they say, "Hey, uh, the the director of pro scouting is told by the GM, we're talking to the Pirates about a trade. We need to take someone off of their assignment and move them to the Pirates." Uh, somebody has to reorganize all the schedules. And so there's a lot of sort of paperwork and things. And or like when minor league six year free agents come up, who's going to take the list of six year free agents, update it as new guys come on there? and then marry that with the scouting reports and with the stats and give, like, a nice, clean printout to everybody, that's what the sort of coordinator of pro scouting would do, sort of like like sort of the administration, uh, sort of paperwork um, support of that um, of that, of that guy. All that information, there's a lot of sort of administration behind the work stuff that has to happen to run smoothly. And so when you see coordinator, comma, specific department, or uh, assistant director or something like that, that's what that sort of means, is he's the guy behind the scenes helping all that work. Okay, that's great. So, that, so that's that, that's this sort of coordinator level, which would be right below the, the director, presumably. Yeah, yeah, and often you'll have a, a coordinator to denote, because like assistant or assistant director may be more of an entry-level job. Coordinator would say he's probably the guy that's in charge of the interns that are helping in that department, like that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, so am I allowed to ask you about director of amateur scouting now? Yeah, we can go there now. All right, that's Matt Dory. Matt Dory with the Cubs, and of course, and, and now is this another position that exists in the other 29 teams as well, pretty dependably? Yeah, there's different there's different ways to explain it, but it's like scouting director, like the guy in the room that runs the draft room kind of thing. But you'll also see now, uh, as the sort of GM and president have meant different things, director of amateur scouting means the guy that's in charge of the scouts, the guy that makes the the picks, 
could be a different guy. There could be sort of, in this case, Jason McLeod, that's sort of a senior VP, player development scouting. He is a former scouting director, and I would bet for the you know first three rounds he has a little more weight in the room than, say, Matt Dory would. Mm-hmm. But then when you get beyond round three, Jason McLeod may not have seen the players outside of the top three rounds because he's also doing you know international and pro and things like that. And then rounds four through 40 or whatever the rest of them are, that it might be sort of Matt Dory. And I, I don't know if that's exactly the case. I'm sort of saying that when there's guys with those sorts of titles, that's often how it's handled. And if you have a GM that used to be, or a VP of scouting that used to be a scouting director, often they'll be the guy that will help make the pick or... <coughs> oh. Yeah, or, or will be the guy that sort of, quote, makes the pick uh, the first round or two where your sort of high-level guys are seeing all the guys that are in play. Okay, all right. So, yeah, so and I think that's a very... There, there's a mythic quality to that guy who's in, who runs the draft, right? Because yep. uh, I mean, he's getting a lot of information. His ability is, or, or his his um, he's tasked with synthesizing that information, um, and ultimately his name is attached to those players that are being selected, especially towards the top of the draft, like you're saying. Yeah, and I know of another team where there is a. I was told. Uh, the director was told, you are sort of in charge of managing the scouts. You are not the guy that makes the picks, like was specifically told that. Um, and and that, like managing the scouts and sort of helping manage the information and like managing the process and all that, that is a complicated job. And maybe in that setting, the director of scouting is the second, maybe third voice in the room, depending, mm-hmm. like I said, if like the VP of scouting has experience in that market or maybe the GM has experience in that market or you know, whoever it is that is sort of where the buck stops. But you're going to have, so if we want to sort of launch into the whole uh, amateur scouting domestic uh, sort of discussion, he's going to be in charge of uh, sort of directing where everyone goes and who the guys are targeting and, like, how to best allocate time and resources um, and, you know, helping run the pre-draft workouts, things like that. But you're going to have, I think it's most teams are like 12 to 15 area scouts, and then you'll have three or four regional cross-checkers that are basically the bosses of, you know, three or four different area scouts. And then you'll have a couple national cross-checkers. You have yourself. You'll probably have an assistant director in the office that may also basically function as a cross-checker as well, depending on what his background is. And then you'll also have, like, uh, you know, the rover that goes to all the different affiliates to help your minor league players, that if it's like you're looking at a catcher in the first round, you'll want your catching rover to go see the guy to have an opinion about him. And you'll also have, you know, other sort of various coaches and gurus and VPs and maybe the director of baseball ops, the director of pro scouting, depending on his background or relationship with you or the GM. Those guys will be coming in. And especially early in the season when only the southern states are playing, sometimes the area scout in that state will have to coordinate six different people that are going in different parts of the state to tell them which prospects to watch and who to target. So there's a lot of organization to make sure you're using all of your resources in, in like, an effective way. Yeah. And so... uh... I guess how did who? Hmm. Yes, I guess, yes. There's just a lot of uh, I guess there's a lot of moving parts. Is the idea? Yeah, because you're I mean you're in charge of every amateur baseball player in the country. You can imagine how you could you know oh we saw this guy six times and we realized by the sixth time we're not going to draft him. He's not the kind of guy we like. Ideally, we could have figured that out after the first time we saw him. Right. And so there's there's five looks we could have spent on somebody else. Yeah, and then yeah, so so it has to be. Um... And that's the reason why, as much as a lot of scouts will laugh at the scouts that I know and like and talk to me that think the process of ranking prospects for, like, the Internet is stupid, they follow along because what I write about this guy's either a first-round pick or a second-round pick, that impacts where they think a guy's going to go. And if I'm saying a guy's, say, like, I have 25 to 35, like that area, and they're picking one and 65, 
they can now use that information to better figure out where they want to go, regardless of what they think of the player, because what I say will more accurately reflect what the other 29 teams think, which they may be cagey with this particular scout, but I may be able to triangulate what these guys think, which helps them sort of prioritize who they want to see. Right. Uh, can I ask and, you? And they can also approximate where this guy would be in sort of an industry value, which maybe oftentimes will be different than mine. Can I ask you about another guy? Okay. What is a let's a director, director of players? So we've had how many directors have we had? We had a director of pro scouting. Yep. We had a director of amateur scouting. Yep. We had a director of baseball operations. Mm-hmm. Director of player development. Was it uh, Jeremy Madison? Yep, he used, I know him, uh, he actually, uh, interviewed me for a job once. Um, he used to be on- Did he just show up and he laughed at you? Is that what happened? <laughs> he walks on and he was like, nope, see you guys. <laughs> Look at this I guy. I'm out. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he, uh, worked with Jeff Lunau in St. Louis as a, I believe, got up to national craft checker. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has a background in like amateur scouting. And director of player development is the guy that is in charge of knowing Knowing everything and as best of his ability helping the current minor leaguers, so rookie ball on up, uh, getting better, uh, you know, what level are they gonna go at? Like, the guy that when the GM is like, you know, we need a guy in AAA to fill in, we obviously have our own scouts and our own guys that have opinions, but you're sort of the guy that can tell me, oh, this guy's going through a divorce, he's not gonna be able to handle it. Like, he's sort of the, the gatekeeper of all of the information about the minor league system. So you, that also is typically a shorthand of director of player development can be farm director. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I think, I think yeah. some teams call it that, but that's that's sort of the more formal title. So he probably, um, as much as anyone in, in in an organization, has an idea where all the players who are signed by the Cubs, currently under contract to the Cubs, where all of them are, uh, what all of them are doing on the field, and and perhaps what they're doing off the field as well. Yeah, and it's like two hundred fifty to three hundred players, so it's it's a it's a tall task, and it's. And it's sort of like the buck stops with him when it comes to, uh, like even the GM will usually defer to that director part of all when it comes to how to promote a player because he'll know, like often these guys, uh, like the teams I've worked for, these guys will have offices in like the major league stadium, but are almost never there because especially after the draft, there's like seven or eight teams playing, uh, of your affiliates and you're just basically going from one to the other. And sometimes it's not like the typical five days to do the full scouting report because you obviously see all these guys for, multiple years, you're not trying to get like a full scouting look. Mm-hmm. They'll just go like two games here and then two games there and then this guy's rehabbing in Florida at our affiliate or the you know the uh, spring training home. So I'll go two days there and then maybe the big league team has a bunch of prospects up and I'm it's, it'll it'll be good for them if I'm there when they're there. And so I'll be up for the first couple of days in September and so they're they just sort of live on the road constantly. It's sort of like the window washer once you finish doing it you have to go back to the first one. You just never stop washing the windows of that one building. Right. So his abil- his his main job seems like he he's just he, he's sort of like it, it would be important for him to be there when the the prospects are called to the majors. Like his job is to is to go around and to to know everybody, to develop relationships with everybody. And he's also the generally the guy that makes the decisions about who the minor league coaches are at each level and works with the rovers that go between different levels and uh and also a lot of times when people will ask, hey, this guy's in AAA and you have his tools rated pretty well. And he's hitting well, and he's like 22, and he's like high on the prospect list. Why isn't he up yet? It is almost certainly because they don't eat. If it's not like you know super two stuff or you know time uh, service time stuff, it's because they don't think he's mentally ready. And this is the guy that has the best handle on that because he talks to all the different guys that work with that player on a daily basis. 
he also has a multi-year relationship with him. Like that's the guy that's telling the GM, "Don't call him up yet. He's not ready. He can't handle this." Okay. All right. So that is. So we've talked now four types of directors. Uh, I will allow me to rephrase. Allow me to restate them: director of baseball operations, director of pro scouting, director of amateur scouting, and director of player development. The Cubs have one more type of director, as do the Dodgers, which is another uh, team whose site I have up in front of me here. Uh, For the Cubs, it is oh, director of mental health program, which uh, which I think it seems unique. And then the fifth for the Dodgers is director of player personnel. I don't know if those overlap. Oh no, no, I'm lying to you entirely. You've lost complete control of this process. I have director of research and development is one I wanted to ask about. Yes, because uh, uh, both clubs have, uh, they both have one. And um, well, I can tell you, I can tell you quickly. Director of player personnel is like an extra title, meaning uh, if you think of it, of like almost like what I do at Fangraphs, like does a little bit of big league stuff, but focuses on the minor leagues. We'll go to random guys there. We'll do a little bit of July two. We'll do the draft. That's like a title that means guy that floats around in all those areas and sort of helps uh, helps the international guys that only do international stuff. If you want to compare one of those guys to who you could get with like a draft pick or a guy that's currently in the minors, this is a guy that goes between all those areas. And not every team has that title. Sometimes that title is VP. Sometimes the director of baseball ops has a background in scouting, and so he'll do all those things. So that's just like an extra title, if, especially if you want to get a title to bring an extra guy in at the director level. That's one you'll create to bring in a guy uh, to do that. Okay, so baseball director of baseball ops, pro scouting, amateur scouting, player development, research and development. Number five. Yes. What is he? Uh, this is, is this the nerdier side? Yes. That's sort of director of analytics, director of uh, research and development. There's a couple different ways of saying that, uh, but yeah, that's that's the sort of head nerd guy, I guess. And there's some teams where I think there's a assistant GM that's almost at the sort of nerd status, but mm-hmm. typically if you're just straight nerd, no scouting, <laughs> uh, straight up nerd, straight up nerd in it. If, yeah, but if like you have no scouting background, you don't necessarily know the rules or contracts better than anyone else in the office. That's sort of the highest level uh, for you. Okay. Uh, if you're just sort of a you know strictly strictly R and D or, or analytics, mm-hmm. so he'll be in charge. In it, you pick the Cubs and the Dodgers, who both are obviously analytically inclined, and so they'll have a full staff of guys. You mentioned for the Cubs, there were two guys you knew from the internet. Yeah. And, and for every two guys, I've actually seen Albert lose his real face. I've seen his real face and talked to it. So we can confirm that's a real guy. Yeah, I can tell you. Yeah. So if you look at them, like some of the titles they have in their sort of R&D department, assistant baseball systems developer, assistant research and development, assistant director of research and development, baseball systems architect. That kind of gives you, you know, if you have any, if you have any feel for like building databases and things like that, you would hear those words and sort of could tell people what those things mean. Uh, I worked in one of those departments for one year. Uh, when I was in Pittsburgh, I worked in that sort of area, mm-hmm. but I was sort of like the guy between the scouting department and the analytics. So. I wasn't all the way in there, as you may guess. Um, so, yeah, each team, like I said, you pick two teams where there is uh, a substantial commitment to analytics. So you're going to have sort of a head there and then, say, four or five full-time baseball-only guys. A lot of times there will be, like, a guy that helps on the business side or maybe, you know, stuff on the team website or that does analytics for business things. That will also it would be, like, a dual-purpose role to go between both areas. And then, of course, you're going to have uh, a lot of times interns will be in this sort of area because that's a place where there's going to be college kids that want to help out. And they're also sort of even below that, or not below that, but uh, next to that, you also have uh, some titles like baseball operations assistant, assistant director of baseball operations, things like that. Those are sort of entry-level, all-purpose, like 
a lot of times those guys will be on the track to become a director of baseball operations, so in more sort of the administration area. But also when they're entry level, sometimes it'll be a guy that's on that track, uh, you know, might know the rules pretty well, be pretty good with a spreadsheet or a database or numbers, may have some playing experience, sort of a guy that can help in different departments, so they'll give him a general title and sort of see where he sticks or where he's needed the most. Okay. But yeah, I guess, I guess I can't really explain what research and development any more than people that are listening to this can probably already imagine that, you know, they're, they're the ones that are running the information that goes down to the manager about shifts and all that sort of thing. And then also it's, you know, own projection system for making trades and, you know, how much money should we give this guy an extension? Who are the 15 guys like him? What kind of money have they got and how much have they worked out? You know, all those sorts of things. Okay. And then, and it, yeah, like I said, the Cubs have director of mental health, although I don't see that with other organizations necessarily or not, not that, uh, and it's, a uh, uh, Joshua, Joshua Joshua Yeah, most teams have a guy, maybe not with like a director title per se, but they have a guy that does uh, some sort of uh, you know mental health or something along those lines. Uh, but it, it sort of differs uh, through every team. Some guys it only does big league stuff. Uh, some guys it does the whole system. Some guys he makes the questionnaires, like sort of custom ones for the like on the. On the draft board next to guys' names, you'll have you know his score on our on our mental test was you know an AFL, which means he's you know good at these two things and bad at this third thing. So, some teams will have their own uh, test with like you know sort of custom stuff that they're looking for, and that guy may may head up and make that test and sort of manage it, give it to their minor leaguers, that sort of thing. Do they ever give him a Myers Briggs test? I don't think they do, but they might. Can they say he's a feel? He's a feeling. He has feeling and intuition. He's an INFP. Moving on. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> there are a whole bunch of special assistants to the president slash so general that, manager. That's another one where if you want to take a guy that is like, say his title is major league scout or cross checker and you want to take him, but you don't have a director title because he's more of like a scout scout as opposed to like an office guy that coordinates scouts, then special assistant is like the ultimate hammer. Like that's the highest title you can give a guy that just goes to games. Right. So like Ted Lilly, recent former major leaguer, is a special assistant to the president slash general manager for the Cubs, as is Kerry Wood. Um, those are n- more notable names for that. Um, yes, and then, it's also the title you tend to give, as you can see on the Cubs, uh, former players. Right. Okay. Because it's like they they are notable. They have there's like a certain gravitas to their name because they're like yes, I was in the major leagues for a long time. Yeah, and also I, I think like I mean I don't know what Ted Lilly does, but. Uh, Oftentimes it'll be sort of like a, uh, you know, maybe helps a big league pitcher that happens to be like him or maybe a minor leaguer that is like him. Like it's sort of like, like it isn't like a specific uh, thing and may, you know, maybe he doesn't have a thing he goes to. Like the, there's a lot of teams that have former players that some of them they don't really do anything. It's almost like an honorary title. Other ones they're like on the road constantly working with players. It's just like an easy catch-all title to give a guy that's, you know, has some prestige to it. Okay. That's fine. And then I noticed, uh, so like the, you, you've mentioned national cross checkers. Is this, are, are national cross checkers, are these sorts of the guys who are working with the director of, um, what, director of amateur scouting? Sorry, um, say that again. The, the national cross checkers, is that, is that sort of a thing that's, that's just below, uh, director of amateur scouting? Yeah, that's, that's like the top assistant to the, scouting director that goes all over the whole country and then obviously you have your regional cross checkers below that who are responsible for just a certain part of the country okay anyway uh, I think that's uh, 
those are all the major ones I have questions about, I guess, because there are a lot of positions that are sort of like a coordinator or assistant, as you noted, which are sort of under the umbrella of whatever you know, branch of the ops of the baseball ops department. It's typically an, an administrative paperwork backing up the guy with the fancier title. It's basically what those jobs mean. Right. Yeah. Is there anything that we're missing? You think that uh, needs needs to be addressed? Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like people are always asking me about the hierarchy of uh, of amateur scouting, which I guess we've already touched on with national cross checker. Regional cross checker is the guy in charge of the you know two to five scouts in his region, and is sort of the guy they talk to on a daily basis about here's the guy I need to get cross checked, meaning have a high level guy see him. Usually it's you know top four to five round type players, uh, but you you also have you know quote, getting a player cross-checked uh, can mean anyone basically above area scout level. So it could be a guy from the office could go see him and uh, sort of vouch for him in the office if he has sort of enough pull in the draft room. Uh, but yeah, these are all the sort of main titles and sort of explaining how they all work. And I feel like if you need to know more than that about amateur scouting, then you probably are just trying to be an amateur scout. <laughs> in which case, go to, go talk to some guy and ask him. He could tell you more. And, and I guess one other thing uh, to explain about pro scouting is there are major league scouts which just go to major league games, and then there are special assistants which will generally only go to like AAA and big league games because that's it's this is sort of a weird thing in the industry, but um, the older you are and the more experienced and the more trusted and the higher paid you are, the higher level games you go to. So like you start out at the low levels and you'll go to AAA in the big leagues. Ironically, you're needed the least at those levels because I could probably tell you what number OFP wise or future value or whatever system you use. I can tell you what number you're going to put on almost every player in a AAA game before you get there. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you have the least, um, there's like the least uh, gap from what people think and what you may see, but it's the most experienced guys. And so there's some argument that like the most experienced guys should go where there's the widest gap between like consensus and what people think and what you may write down, which would be like high school and July 2 and things like that. But that scene, those are seen, I guess big league cities have, you know, Bigger cities, more expensive hotels, you know, better restaurants. Like it's seen as a cushier gig, and so yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, more comfort. When you're yeah, the I older see. you get, the more comfortable you want to be. Exactly, and so guys want to be there, and so it eventually just morphed into that. Even though it may should be completely the other way, but it would be hard to imagine like a former big leaguer, seven year old special assistant that's like in the ear of the gym on a daily basis at like a GCL game, sweating it out on the backfield where there's like two guys on the field that are worth anything. Like that also seems kind of weird. I'm not saying that should happen either. But it just, it seems unusual that that's the way it works out. But so anyway, so there's sort of special assistants, major league scouts, that, and they're basically sort of AAA and major league games only. Uh, and then you have pro scouts, which is generally, uh, they'll, they'll cover a couple big league teams, but they'll do generally AAA down to A ball. And then you'll also have what is now becoming a more common sort of entry level job, which will be like, uh, like all of the short season league rookie ball, short season low A and down. And they'll give you like, uh, there's also a split in the industry on whether people prefer doing minor league coverage. So like the teams you're given, you know, guys will get 15 or 20 teams to cover a year. If you give it uh, regionally. So like, let's say you live in Florida, they give you the whole Florida state league and like a couple Sally or Southern league teams in Georgia. Or do you give them organizations where it'll be like, all right, uh, uh, you're a scout for the pirates. You're in charge of every minor league team for, you know, the Rays, the Yankees and the Orioles. And basically just rotate between all three of those teams. You would probably end up seeing them all twice or something like that. Um, and that way you can follow guys through the organization. Yeah, and but also the teams that do that every two or three years will change the teams because I guess the idea is if the same guy is covering this one team for like 10 straight years, that will 
like effect if you ever make a trade with them based on what that one guy's opinion tends to be on guys. So they still cycle them through. So you, you never get more than two or three years of history with a guy. But I guess the idea is regionally you save money because you, you can just drive from your house, drive in the car to the games. And, you know, maybe you could tell, like, you know, I'm seeing all of the Florida State League. I can compare all these guys to each other. But then the other way, if you do it organizations, I personally like the idea of the GM, we're making a trade with the Red Sox. I have one guy to talk to. And this guy's watched their whole system for two years. He can compare them all to each other. He's seen them all. He's long history with them, all that sort of thing. And if you really trust that scout, that's fantastic. That's what you want. It's one guy that's seen everybody that can translate everything. But if maybe it's a newer scout that doesn't have history, it's his first year with, with the team, first year covering that organization, maybe you think his grades aren't always spot on, then you're screwed. Uh, and it's also way more expensive because maybe your scout lives in Florida, maybe three of the orgs he covers are in the Florida State League. They also may have like a Midwest League team in like Michigan. And then the big league team is like way off somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. What is up with that, Kylie? Well, it costs more. You're away from home more. Uh, it's like you, you take on a risk. And so the teams that do it, I think are convinced, like sort of what I was saying, that the information is better and you get sort of better results doing it that way. But even then the results, it's like very small margins because what are the odds you trade with any one team at any given time and that it's a trade that ends up mattering? I mean, it might only be one move during the three years that this guy is covering that team. So. Teams with bigger payrolls are more likely to do that, I think, because they have sort of more money to spend to make incremental changes. But even some of those teams may think that the regional one ends up, they think it may end up with better information for them. So that's sort of a philosophical difference. What do you think about, uh, so how does it work? You said that there are regional, you know, like regional director, regional cross checkers, whatever. Uh, I assume that uh, there's less going on in New England than there is in Southern California. Yeah, if you're a northeast, so typically cross checker will be west, midwest, southeast, and northeast. So split into four regions. Yeah. The northeast cross checker spends half of his season below the Mason Dixon line. Cause like the games aren't even played, uh, until like halfway through the spring. Same way with like the midwest guy. Like midwest can mean all the way down to Texas and Oklahoma. Cause it's terrible here in March and April. <laughs> Some would say all year round. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> no, it's nice in the summer. I meant because you would be there. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so there, that's actually funny. I remember I have a friend that got a North, was working in the Southeast generally and then got a Northeast job as the cross checker. And he was like, I'll see even more than usual now because I've just been half the season in the Southeast before I had North. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's that and I've had some Florida area guys explain to me that, you know, on March 15th, we might have like nine scouts at games in Florida at the same time. Because you have guys in the office, in town for spring training that are looking for something to do because they're sick of watching our big league team. You have me, you have the Southeast Cross Checker. Maybe both of our national guys are based in Florida. So if there's a game in Florida, they'd rather go there than like go to Texas, all things being equal. Maybe your directors, most directors are from Florida, Arizona, California, one of those three states. Um, and then you might also have like a VP and, you know, national cross checkers and some other guys. Maybe the Northeast or the upper Midwest area guys are all done in Florida. So all of a sudden, the Florida area guy's got a lot of like traffic cop stuff to do, and he has to know everything about everybody in his state. He can't be finding out a month late because he's got so many eyeballs there. He can keep track of everybody. Um, so that that Florida and yeah, I guess specifically Florida area scout. If you're a team that runs spring training out of Florida, can be you know a lot of work in March. Hey Kylie, guess what? If I fulfilled my obligation? Yeah, I think you've I think what you've done is gone ahead and fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I done fulfilled an obligation. Today. Yeah, how does it feel? It was pretty good. I'm a, little, I'm a little gassy, but. I want to thank you, Kylie. Did you know I'm the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com? Well, what I'd like to inform to say is uh, that has been the lead prospect analyst, Fangraphs.com. 
who's uh, been talking about what the hell everyone does in a major league front office. I should add, we completely skipped one department. I don't know if you caught that. What? What is it? International scouting. Yeah, come on, dude. It's just like scouting, except now you're in a different country. That's, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Sometimes you'll have... Well, I'll give you the 10-second explanation. Sometimes you'll have a guy that's like a coordinator of uh, Pacific uh, Rim stuff, Yeah. a guy that does Latin American stuff, and then typically it'll be a much smaller department of guys that'll do sort of Europe. So he uh, has a he has like a Pacific Rim job is what you're saying? Yes, he has a Pacific Rim job. Um, yeah, so typically it'll get split up a little bit because you'll have sort of like your pro scouting guy will be interested in the Japanese and Korean professional leagues. There's also like amateurs in Korea and, you know, Taiwan, and then you also have a completely sort of separate operation in a lot of cases will be the Latin stuff, and then I said sometimes you'll kind of separate uh, the Cubans from sort of the July 2 guys, and you also have some of your pro guys go down and watch the winter leagues down there. Sometimes that'll mesh with the international guys, and then oftentimes you'll have a different set of guys that do Europe for you because it's a little lower. What about the scouting hotbed of Europe? Yeah, there's a lot of teams will only have uh, part-time guys there that'll just kind of go to the showcases. If there's a guy that's, you know, hits 90 or has some real tools, they'll let, let him know. And then the guy that I was leading up to, the guy that coordinates all of that, sometimes it'll be two different guys, but often there'll be one guy that's director of international scouting or international operations or things like that. Sometimes they'll have director of, you know, Latin scouting or Latin operations or Pacific Rim operations. Sometimes they'll split it up even further than that. But typically there'll be one guy uh, that'll be in charge of all of the international everything. And so, yeah, if the European scout says, hey, there's a guy that might get 500K, then you'll send over some of those guys to, you know, double check and kind of see what, how they compare to all the other guys. But yeah, that's pretty much it. You, you can imagine from all the other stuff I said how that works out. And okay. also, and also the office support for international stuff with all the visas and Well, I can under, I can, I can guess, Kylie. Yeah, there's more of that because there's, there's like a whole thing with trying to get visas for players for spring training and all that kind of thing. That has been Kyla McDaniel, head prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Testuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Feels so complete now. Are you going to do a reggae tone horn? No.